1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch.
0: Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Do you know who's living next door? The witness protection program is supposed to protect vulnerable people who were unfortunate enough to witness a crime.
0: So that couple were running a very successful business in North Belfast. They disappeared under witness protection and they have never been seen again. So that is an example of it being used for the purpose that it's intended to. It put someone behind
1: bars. But for some of Northern Ireland's worst criminals, it's like winning the lottery.
0: He was living in England since he fled Northern Ireland after being exposed as an informer. Um, and he was found to be living in a £600,000 house in Guildford.
1: It's the generous, taxpayer-funded life in hiding for terrorists, crime bosses, and even a loyalist who confessed to sexual abusing underage girls.
0: Admit this, you know, you're, you're a paedophile, you're a sex offender. And he just said about the, the you know, the sort of Mount Vernon UVF squad, he went, Should we were all doing that. Like, the journalists sitting there, we were all staring at each other, going, this is absolutely insane. Like, these boys are going into witness protection. You could be living next door to them, and you wouldn't know.
1: To tell me more, I'm joined by our crime correspondent, Alison Morris. Alison, once again, you're very welcome to the Bell Belltel. You know, witness protection, a lot of people, I think, would be listening to this saying, what do you mean, witness protection here? That's a thing in America. You know and you think of films like Goodfellas and Henry Hill at the end you know living in his new suburban life like and you a just schmuck
0: can't even get decent pasta sauce <laughs> um, So
1: you just wonder does this really happen here what is this scheme we have here
0: It doesn't happen a lot I have to say it is used very sparingly but yes it does happen here and often in quite controversial circumstances, I suppose. I'll give you an example of when it's used for the purpose it's intended to. So most people will say witness protection, as you said in your intro, you witness a crime or you're a victim of crime, especially here where we have paramilitaries and to give evidence against them in court is very dangerous. Um, A case I remember covered many, many years ago was the leading loyalist, Andre Shukri. So one of the Shukri brothers, he became a brigadier in the UDN North Belfast and he was charged with intimidating... Um, a couple, a, a woman who was the landlady of a bar in the Cave Hill Road in North Belfast. He eventually, this woman was paying extortion money. He was literally using the bar like it was his own private office. He was getting and bringing mates in. They were drinking for nothing. They were extorting money out of her. They were insisting that they had all the money from the machines in the place. Um... And eventually it got to the point where I don't think the woman just had run out of money and wasn't able to pay them. And eventually she didn't give evidence against him. So he was charged with, I think it was 18 charges of, of blackmail and intimidation. But that couple have never been seen again. So that couple were running a very successful business in North Belfast. They disappeared under witness protection and they have never been seen again. So that is an example of it being used for the purpose that it's intended to. It put someone behind bars. But the people who give evidence then had to obviously give up their life that is not how it's always used in Northern Ireland specifically. I don't think that you would see as much of this in other um, jurisdictions, although we will come to one very high-profile case. that happened quite recently. But people like Freddie Scabatici, who died quite recently. We've done a podcast about Freddie Scabatici in the past. He was living in England since he fled Northern Ireland after being exposed as an informer. Um, and he was found to be living in a £600,000 house in Guildford, in England. But when he was alive, he had what was basically a watertight High Court injunction, which meant that nobody from the media could report where he was or even take modern, up-to-date pictures of him. So we have this situation with these people... But well, people would have
1: known where he was. People in the media would have had a general idea. <laughs> I'm going to tell you was. The,
0: the most bizarre part of this, which I think we discussed before. He actually got money from the news of the world because they hacked his phone to find out where he was. He was he was phoning his wife back in Belfast and and they traced the phone calls and were listening to the, the voice messages and they ended up getting compensation off them. But the neighbours who he was never living next door to just see this very small, portly, clearly a man of Italian descent, living next door to them in this very leafy suburb of Guildford. And they had absolutely no idea who he was. And he lived there for many years. Um,
1: and he wouldn't have been calling himself Freddie Scappaticci.
0: He called himself quite a few names, apparently. Um, He called himself Frank at one point, and they knew him as that. But then sometimes he introduced himself as Michael. And he used both of those names. Um, he'd been a builder by trade when he was here. And he'd, uh, he'd been a bricklayer, actually. And, but he didn't work when he got to there. They say that he drove a, a very nice silver Mercedes that he went in and out, but nobody ever knew where he went. Um, and he even had a girlfriend. So he had joined a dog walking club. And he had met this lady who he would take on dates, apparently despite the fact that he was one of the most highest paid informers. You know, the crown jewels of the British intelligence agency, he took her to Pizza Express rather than anywhere fancier than that. But he lived a very normal sedate, albeit quite private life, you know, devoid of maybe family pictures and souvenirs and things you'd expect to see um, in the house of, of someone of that age. But he lived until his death a very normal life. Now, let's put this into perspective. But, this but is do, a man
1: do, does no one, I mean, I think the question that people would be asking, you can imagine witness protection in America or something. You go to the other side of America, you go to Seattle or somewhere, or they make you live in Alaska. But if people here, I mean, if, you, if they make somebody from Belfast live in Ballycastle, sooner or later somebody's going to recognise you. Yeah. But did, even over in England, did no one have access to the internet to realise who the new guy in the dog walking club is?
0: I think that because we're so immersed in news in Northern Ireland, especially the news of our past, we assume that everybody's as obsessed with our past as we are. And I can't imagine that most people in Guildford and this lovely leafy suburb had even any idea. Although, remember, Guildford made the news for other reasons. It was one of the the scenes of the RA's um, bombing campaign when they took their their campaign to England. And uh, um, at that time, Guildford, Birmingham, those pub bombings. But apart from that, they would have had very little knowledge of what went on here. Um, You know, I had seen a picture of him that was taken. He actually did return once for his father's funeral. He was told, I noticed an article recently said he returned for his wife's funeral. He was actually told by his children not to come back for his wife's funeral, that they didn't didn't want him there. But he did return briefly for his father's funeral and there was pictures taken of him. And he looked better than he did when he left, I'm telling you. So he was clearly living quite a comfortable a comfortable lifestyle. He disappeared from this house in Guildford after then all the publicity around Operation Canova, which would have been the first time probably he'd been back in the headlines after everything that had happened when he left Belfast. And at that stage, maybe they thought his cover had been blown and they moved him to somewhere more secure where he went after that, I'm not quite sure. But he did live. Um, and and interestingly too, at the time when he went, there was a tabloid media frenzy around the, the around from Scapatisha. And journalists were being sent all over the place. I know there was journalists being sent to Italy. They said that the Scapicci name had come from Sicily and he must be hiding out there and he was fluent Italian. I'm not sure the man spoke a word of Italian. You know, his father was Italian um and there was people sent there looking for him. There was talk that he was in Canada, talk that he was in America but he was a bit of a homebird, you see, because, you know, if you look into the past of Freddie Scabatici, he had once been um, he was a very promising footballer and he had been signed to a very high profile English football club. And he went over there for trials and he couldn't stick it because he missed home too much. So I think maybe his personal choice was that he went to England rather than further afield because he did still have contact with some members of his family and um, some of them had disowned him but some of them stayed in touch with him so maybe that was his choice but just to, just to say Freddy Scapatissi is part of the Operation Canova which is looking at around 30 murders you know sources say that 18 murders he was directly involved in himself as in he either pulled the trigger or he stood there and said kill shoot him now um, and that is the person who was then living next door you know to these very middle he's very English very polite quite well off people in in Guildford in the £600,000 very nice detached house so that is one of the reasons when you come to the witness protection scheme and people may think that's shocking, I'm not even going to stop there I've got quite a few cases that are equally as, as horrific as that um, So
1: one of the examples that you've mentioned are there's two of them uh, they're brothers, the Stuart brothers, they're from Mount Vernon in North Belfast
0: they are. I sat through the Stewart brothers trial. I was there for most of that trial. So, Robert and Ian Stewart were members of the Mount Vernon UVF. The Mount Vernon and UVF was absolutely riddled with informants. Um, and there are two, they're, they're not the only two members in witness protection. One of their, you know, erstwhile colleagues, Mark Haddock, is also currently in witness protection um, after turning supergrass. But they specifically give evidence in a case. Just to put it into perspective, there was new legislation introduced in 2005. It was the Serious Organised Crime and Police Act and that gave um, authorities the powers to investigate. It was to do with like organised crime or whatever, but in Northern Ireland it was used. Someone clearly in the Prosecution Service thought, look, there's a loophole there that we can use assistant offenders. That's a, It was a very controversial prospect at the time because we are a place that remembers very well the Supergrass trials you know, of the the um of the 1980s and almost all of those trials collapsed on appeal. You know, dozens of people were sent to prison for lengthy periods of time but the majority of them all, all got out on appeal and then the Supergrass system collapsed as a result of that. So this was the first time we had seen one of these so-called Supergrass trials. It ran for weeks and I was there for day one and the first day that they pulled out one of the Stewart brothers to give evidence within the first half hour I remember thinking... These boys are liars and not one word that comes out of their mouth you could believe and this is going nowhere and yet trundled on and on and on it did at the cost I think of something like £11.5 million to the public purse so they were given evidence against a number of other alleged UVF members in relation to the murder of Tommy English, who was murdered in October 2000. Tommy English was a very senior member of the UDA. The UDA and the UVF were having a feud at the time. Tommy English was murdered. um, And these purred said that they would give evidence against a number of people who had been charged Now, with more than 30 offences in relation to that, the Stewart brothers themselves were self-confessed. They weren't just paramilitaries, they were self-confessed thieves. They were drug addicts. They both admitted to having serious drug problems. Robert Stewart most controversially admitted that he had been um, abusing girls who were uh, said to be around 13 years of age at the time. I remember sitting in the court that day with my mouth jaw on the floor when I realised that somebody had signed off Robert Stewart as a state witness, despite knowing that what they were doing is, they were getting young girls on their way to school in the morning in their school uniforms they were saying, come to the community centre, we'll have a party they were filling them full of drinking and drugs and he admitted then that he was abusing these girls and having sex with them um, and in a remarkable moment when one of the defence counsel got up and said to him... Uh, admit this, you know, you're you're a paedophile, you're a sex offender. And he just said about the, the you know, the sort of Mount Vernon UVF squad, he went, "Should we were all doing that. And like the journalists sitting there, we were all staring at each other going, this is absolutely insane. Like these boys are going into witness protection. You could be living next door to them and you wouldn't know. The trial judge, who is Mr Justice Gillen, probably one of the most high profile judges in, in Northern Ireland, he described them as being of extremely bad character. He said that both lied to police and to the court, not only about their true motivation in becoming assistant offenders, but also in their account of the crimes. And that's a line that always stuck with me because I've noticed in previous cases and cases that have come since then as well. Um, and also when people come out and say, of their, you know, if they, they see the light, say, and they go, you know, I'm no longer... You get critics who were former loyalist prisoners or former Republican prisoners and they come out and they're now, you know, they're, they're paraded across the media as they say, you know, this was all terrible and we shouldn't have done this. They minimise their role in everything they've done and they maximise or, or exaggerate the role of other people. And that's just naturally because they are offenders who were involved in these terrible acts... One of those accused later challenged this and said that these brothers lied to the court. The judge accepted the lie to the court, yet they've been given this really reduced sentence. It should be now taken off them because surely that's a breach of their agreement under the legislation. They should be returned to, to prison. It was David Schofield who was representing one of the loyalists who was charged, Jason Lachlan, and um, he's now Judge Schofield, very esteemed. David Schofield argued that these boys had given evidence which was not beneficial to the public. You know, nobody went to jail. The person who went to jail could have been prosecuted without a single day of their evidence. The rest of the people walked free and yet they were text- They were given a reduced sentence, taken into the witness protection scheme at a significant cost to the, the public purse um, and you don't know where they are now. And I sometimes think about the Stuart brothers because I think imagine some lovely family could be living next door to these people who were absolute horrors.
1: So they've admitted these crimes. They have been convicted for a number of crimes. They had their sentences greatly reduced and then they get out and they go straight into witness protection. Yeah. New name, new new house, new life. And their evidence was practically useless.
0: It was completely useless. And they are not the only member of the Mount Vernon UVF who did the same thing around the same time when obviously... I suppose at that stage, someone in the Prosecution Service thought, oh, this is great. We're going to put all these paramilitaries behind bars by using, you know, a replica of the old Supergrass system, but with this new watertight legislation. And at that stage, former UVF Commander Gary Haggerty, who was Also um, admitted a litany of crimes which included five killings as well as that there were hundreds of other offences which were taken into consideration. He wasn't even charged with them. They were just sort of kept on the books, if you like. Um, But he accused 11 other paramilitaries and two special branch officers of involvement involvement in multiple murders. Um, So Haggerty, as we know and we know from previous ombudsman reports, was a long-time police informer. He eventually pleaded guilty to 202 terror offences. Um, and in 2017 the Public Prosecution Service said that his evidence was not enough to prove the allegations beyond reasonable doubt this came after the collapse of the Stewart Brothers trial so the PPS then had to go back and go well maybe this wasn't the great you know, piece of legislation we thought was going to put all these people behind bars and what they accepted then was that assistant offenders evidence supergrass evidence and former evidence whatever you want to call them I know in the south when we talk about this the southern papers say turned rat it's not a phrase that we would ever use up here but it's the same thing that it could only be used if there was corroboration. So say if you were saying to the authorities, I was involved in the murder of X-Y and said, this was the gun we used and you'll find that gun buried in such and such place and they can go and get the gun and forensically link it. If you give details which couldn't have possibly been known to the public and they're able to back those up with forensic evidence or CCTV or something else, well then yes, we'll fly with it. But otherwise, then you do not... Either their evidence is not going to be enough to convict. So, despite this, Haggerty had a 35-year jail term, reduced to six and a half years, for helping the police. This was then increased to ten years after it was appealed. But as at this stage, he'd already been released and was in witness protection, he didn't serve another day in prison. So, again, someone somewhere in the world lives next door to Gary Haggerty, a man who admitted to killing five people.
1: And he- he did less than six and a half years. For,
0: much less than that, yeah.
1: Much less than that. Yeah. It's it's, uh, it's, it, it, it really is. It, it's mind-boggling. Um, Mark Burkholm is this another person on case. on this on this in the scheme.
0: Oh, it's one of the worst cases I ever covered. I remember I was working that uh, all of that week and. My heart just broke for the the families of the two young men involved. So ported down teenagers, David McElwain and Andrew Robb, they were just 18 and 19 years of age. Um, They were coming home, they were abducted, they were beaten, they were stabbed, they were mutilated, and the details of it, I mean, I'm not going to because it's so distressing, but the details of the injuries, those two children, two lads suffered, two teenagers, two young guys, were absolutely horrific there was a real problem at the time trying to get those responsible prosecuted, despite the fact that the police knew who they were. There was a big clean up operation. They, they, were the they, were, they were members of the LVF. They were members of the LVF. These kids were not involved. These lads weren't involved in in anything, but they had. I think they had been seen in the company of someone who these men didn't like and they then um, brutally, brutally murdered them. Awful, awful killing. So Stephen Brown, who also used to go by the name of Stephen Revels, was eventually convicted of murdering the two teenagers Um, and partly his conviction was based on the evidence of his co-accused, Mark Burkham, Burkham admitted to a lesser charge and here we go again with what I've just said you know, assistant offenders will minimise their role in the most horrific of crimes and they'll gladly tell you all the information you want to know about somebody else he admitted a lesser charge and he provided evidence in against Brown who received 30 years in prison but there was other corroborating evidence in the case so it did not totally rely on his witness testimony um, and so despite involvement and what the trial judge says was one of the most gruesome um, murders ever committed in Northern Ireland. Burkham was released into witness protection where he remains until this day. And, you know, I'll not go into the whole details so because it's very long, but you, people can Google the murders of, of David McElwain and Andrew Rob, and you'll see the amount of violence and viciousness involved in them was, you know, quite shocking, even for someone like me who I think is a bit desensitized to violence at this stage. Uh,
1: Neil Hyde, that's another LVF character who's also in the programme.
0: God, what a what a, a court court hearing that was! I remember landing down to the the court case that day when there had been a number of people charged um, in relation with the murder of Martin O'Hagan. Martin O'Hagan, as you know, people know, was a a journalist who was shot dead um, in two thousand and one by the LVF. Again there was all sorts of allegations of informers being involved in his killing and collusion and all sorts of other things but eventually the police managed to charge a number of suspects and we arrived down that day with suspicions and being told that one of the suspects has turned informer, he's turned state witness. It was very easy to work out who he was because before the hearing ever st- even started, a solicitor who'd represent and who'd been representing all of the accused stood up and said, "I could no longer represent Neil Hyde as there was a conflict of interest." And that was a pretty big hint that Neil Hyde had turned supergrass and turned state informer. So Neil Hyde was—he um, was like thug-like. I remember him standing in the dock and looking at him. You know, he was—he was quite well built. He. The PPS later admitted that he had not told the full truth in his dealings with the authorities as part of his agreement of entering into the assistant offender programme but he was not returned to prison. Um, He was jailed by Judge Patrick Lynch in 2012 and he said that if he had not have agreed to identify the alleged culprits in Mr O'Hagan's murder and give evidence about the activities of the outlawed LVF. He would have been jailed for 18 years. Instead, he served just three years and was spurted off into witness protection without giving a single day's evidence against any of his former associates.
1: It's strange now, I imagine, I imagine that these characters have been taken somewhere in England. But would they not stand out like a sore thumb?
0: Some of them do and some of them don't. I... Get the impression it's based on how valuable you were as an informer. So some people who, you know, will disappear after being named in their community as having been informers, say, but not in this, that what we're talking about, people who give evidence or agree to give evidence or don't, as this case may be, they might disappear and a lot of them turn up in the States with, you know, somewhere, they'll shop up in a house somewhere in the north of England or somewhere and, and they'll be given a, a new identity, a new passport and they'll be given a backstory and told to stick to it and told to keep themselves themselves. Um, Often they can play in places that are quite rural or they can go further afield. I do know, you know, and some cases we've been told people are, given identities, you know, in places like the south of France. A lot of times Canada, a huge place full of, you know, Irish migrants over there working in the building industry and all sorts of things. You can just melt in and disappear over there if you have another identity. But our world is so much smaller than it used to be years ago, which means it can become quite difficult for these people to disappear. Some of them have disappeared with family members, but most of them disappear on their own and their families don't want anything to do with them after that because, you know, would you uproot... You know your children and everyone else to go chasing after someone who has entered into the witness protection programme. It would require a great deal of uh, a very strong relationship to survive that. But, I mean, I suppose the, the, the thing that we're talking about is should that level of protection be afforded to someone when they've been shown to be a liar and that their, wit- their witness testimony was never used? That is the thing... About this period, and it doesn't. We haven't had it in a long time because it was clear that that legislation wasn't made for that purpose. Is and it was wasn't made to solve historic paramilitary crimes in Northern Ireland, and it just wasn't going to work in that context. Um, and but, it
1: does seem unfair. I mean, you mentioned. I mean, people who you know led one life, and I mean. People work hard to get to Australia, to Canada, or, or to retire to the south of France. And it does seem unfair in a sense that, that it's it's almost like winning the lottery for some people.
0: Well, it, it costs, I mean, I think the last time I seen a cost of it was probably about 10 or 15 years ago. And at that stage, the information released was that it cost about 20 to £25 million pound a year to the UK government to keep people in witness protection. Um, I'm sure that's increased significantly by now I mean they wouldn't be given well most of them wouldn't be getting fast sums of money but they would be given enough to live on so you estimate they're given probably about the equivalent of a £45,000 £50,000 a year wage So, 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 so you get a wage, you
1: don't, you don't have to go and get a job
0: Yeah well some of them will be given a, a fake ID and they'll be given a fake job but I mean most of them aren't really equipped I mean I don't know if you're a Stuart brother and you've spent your life thieving taking drugs and around the Mount Vernon estate what job you're equipped to, to carry out once you move a lot of them are given, you know, uh, an identity such as Skeptici. Where they go, you know, he was he was able to pass it off easy. He was just I'm a retired man. You know, I'm here on my own. Um, but they'll be given they'll be given the full backstory and the full ID, and then their previous ID will just die, as if they'd never been born before. That identity will disappear off all public records, and a new one will exist.
1: Ken Barrett is someone who some of the listeners may remember, he was a UDN former and he confessed to the murder of Pat Finnegan. And he's away.
0: He did. He confessed. Pat Finnegan was murdered in 1989, as we know. Ken Barrett um, confessed to involvement in his murder and he served just three years in prison. He was also linked via an ombudsman report to the murder of Jack Hilty, the father of the now late show presenter, Patrick Hilty. Um, Jack Hitty was a building contractor, he was shut down in January 1988 after resisting we are told UDA demands for protection money um, as part of his business as a, a contractor. Barrett was released under the Good Friday Agreement and immediately whisked off into witness protection for the information he provided about the activities of his UDA associates including people like Johnny Adair. Um and so that was the, the, the end of Ken Barrett. Um, I believe he resides somewhere in England. He hasn't went much further afield than that.
1: They have a similar um, scheme in the South. It's called the Witness Security Programme. Um, there's been some high profile use of it lately. Again, I imagine like Ireland is a small place. I, I, I would have expected a place like Ireland that, that someone in this kind of situation would actually attract attention.
0: You got to. mean, you're definitely not. You're definitely not um, hanging around Ireland if you're, you know, on the the witness protection scheme. I think that they're going to have to take them further than that. The Irish government hasn't in the past paid out huge sums of money for um for witness protection. So I mean, it's not something that they have used, despite the fact that they've obviously got a big gangland problem in the south. It's not something that they have used that often, but they did use it quite recently, and it was brought into, into sharp focus with the um the case of Jerry the Monk Hutch, who. Evidence against him was given by Jonathan Dowdall, who turned state evidence. Jonathan Dowdall had admitted his role in the Regency Hotel attack. That was an attack linked to that very high profile Kennahan hutch feud. Um, Him and his father had actually booked a room in the Regency Hotel, but the attack was carried out the night before it. And that room was used as a base by one of the gunmen who was actually a Straban man called Kevin Murray who gained the nickname Flat Cap because he was pictured running on the scene. He was the only one who didn't bother to cover his face, that was because he was suffering from a very degenerative illness and he died um, a year later before he could ever be uh, extradited or brought to trial. So, Dowdle decided to give evidence against Jerry the Munkutch, and it was absolutely fascinating because they had bugged his car. Now, what we do know is that Dowdle was in touch with dissident Republicans in the North. He was in touch with people from Derry and Sturban, some of whom are currently awaiting charges, people like Kevin Murphy. Um, he also spoke to Thomas Ash Mellon, who's a high profile distant Republican from Derry. He met them in connection with it. I think Jerry the Monkutch wasn't too impressed by these two characters when he, when he met them, but um, and this was all to do because he thought that they could somehow help negotiate an end to this very, very, very bloody and violent violent feud. But the conversations were recorded because Dowdle's car was bugged and it's, the information was given. It's just said in the trial that there was information from an intelligence source, you know, that he was meeting with these people that it might be worth bugging his car and it's now believed that the information came from our friend Dennis McFadden the MI5 informer who had infiltrated the new IRA, who had passed information which is why Dowdle's car was bugged in the first place regardless, nobody believed Dowdle's evidence in court again because assistant offenders are not the most honest of people um, and that's just just where we are with that. Dowdle himself is a man with an incredibly colourful past. He um he had been a Sinn Féin councillor at one stage, but then he didn't last very long in that role. And then he was also convicted of um, abducting and waterboarding and threatening to kill a guy called Anthony Hurley. The court was told then he was subjected to humiliating the ordeal. German style claimed to be a member of the IRA and told Mr Hurley he would be chopped up and fed to the dogs. Um... Patrick Dowdle, who was his father, was sentenced to eight years for his role in the same incident the, the two men admitted then to falsely imprisoning this guy, and that was way back in 2015. This was all like, it makes a bizarre story because they're saying that Jonathan Dowdle and Mr. Hurley met in 2015 after Jonathan Dowdle advertised a motorbike for sale on, you know, some website in the South. There was a contract between the two regarding the purchase of the motorbike. And this was basically a fight over this um, and beaten him and threatened to waterboard him. After that, he was released from prison. He seems to have got himself caught up with Jerry the Monk Hutch and with all these other distant Republicans. He ended up giving evidence. His evidence wasn't accepted because Jerry Hutch walked free from court quite recently. He was found not guilty of involvement in the Regency attack. They did say that there was. it was obvious that his gang had been responsible for that attack, but there was no evidence that he was involved directly in it. Um, so despite being a failed state witness, Jonathan Dowdle, who was kept in a full wing of his own in Limerick Prison, there was complaints that it was costing him so much to keep him in jail that they were trying to get him transferred out and into witness protection as soon as was humanly possible. Um, but despite being a failed state witness, that was still open to him. He actually is saying that the sentence that he received a very, very, very much reduced sentence was still too long and had tried to appeal it despite the prosecution saying it was a, a very generous sentence that he had in fact received generous and fur, I think was the words that the the prosecution used but he will be one of the, probably the most high profile people in the South who's been under witness protection in recent years
1: Well, I think the lesson is, Alison you just don't know who's living next door yeah Alison Morris, Crime Correspondent with the Belfast Telegraph. Thank you very much.
0: You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. That's why veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Because he knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. And our premium cat food is designed to satisfy even the most finicky eaters. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland.